My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In my first two lectures on international law, I distinguished between the different types of laws that make up the global framework. We have, on one hand, municipal or state or domestic law, but then also outer state, supranational, international and transnational law. So I spend some time explaining these different classifications. In the next part of the lecture, I look at the different roles that international law plays within the global legal framework. On one hand, we see it as a system of social order regulating relations between nation states, but on the other hand, it's a mechanism of control whereby nation states articulate how they are going to qualify their sovereignty. And finally, international law has also played an important part as an instrument of domination. Not all states are equal, either in terms of economics, military power, access to resources, and so on. And as a result, this disparity in power can translate into power struggles between various nations, with some able to exert greater influence, greater authority, greater control over the lives of others. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, all right, so we are proceeding with our second introductory session on international law. So the second introductory session. Let's begin with a brief recap. So there were a couple of lessons to have taken away, probably about three, I would say, from the last session. The very first one, a favorite question of publicists or international lawyers is, what is international law? What is international law? We explored three potential answers. It is a system of social order, system of global social order. We also said that it is a mechanism of control associated with the surrender, the voluntary surrender of a portion of sovereignty. And then finally, we said that it's also a, an instrument of domination a means, a tool used by some nations that would qualify as powerful to impose their will on others. What I also said to you is that it's possible to study international law from a variety of angles, different perspectives. These are what we refer to as different theories, or some would say theoretical perspectives. You will experience one with me, and you'll experience others with my colleagues. The third lesson, and this is what we concluded on and where we're going to begin today, is that when we are looking at global legal framework, so thinking globally, notice that I'm not saying the international legal framework, because that's a specific type of law, but a global legal framework, if we were to consolidate the different types of laws that are out there, well, the first one we would begin with would be referred to as municipal law. This is national law, domestic law, or state law. All of those are largely interchangeable. That's the first type. The second one is outer state law, outer state law. The third, international law, international law. Then after that, we end up with supra, or sorry, supra, then international, supra, national law, then international law. 
Then there's a fifth type, which we're not really engaging in this module, called transnational law. So we have those fifth types. Now there's something that I'd like to draw your attention to in relation to those four clear types and possibly we are to include the fifth. And as you saw from the diagram that I drew the other day, when we're beginning with state law, now imagine this circle right here, this is a state. And all the laws that they devise apply within its border. So if you were to draw a diagram, you would have the arrows pointed inwards. So these are laws that apply within the land. Now there's another type. So this is just typical state law, domestic law. There's another type which we refer to as outer state law. Now this is the state itself declaring what it is capable of, what it considers lawful when it is acting outside of its borders, beyond its borders. So many of these laws, if you were to try to engage in this type of activity within the state's borders, would be illegal. But beyond the state's borders, they are permissible. Now there's a fascinating book written by a journalist. The name escapes me at the minute, um, uh, but you're welcome to pose the question later on. I'm sure it'll come back to me. And he describes in vivid detail a type of procedure that is carried out by the Secretary of State, whereby the Secretary of State can empower state agents to engage in a series of activities that would otherwise be unlawful. What are examples of what these activities are? Blackmail, extortion, abduction, torture, murder. And we say, wait a second, how can any of those be legal? How can any of those be lawful? That would be in breach of, certainly, the Crimes Act. It would be in breach of the Human Rights Act. It would be in breach of a variety of human rights treaties. Well, in fact, that Secretary of State that I'm referring to is the British Secretary of State. And that is a procedure that remains valid today in the UK by which the Secretary of State can sign off, it can sign off on permission for state agents to carry out those activities outside of Great Britain's borders. And there is evidence, and we know there was a lawsuit that was brought just a short while ago, that these type of activities were carried out as late as five years ago. So notice, some of you might have picked up on this, notice how I said Great Britain. What did I not say? I did not say the United Kingdom, why not? Ah, it does not include Northern Ireland. So where do we see that a number of these were signed off? In Northern Ireland. To carry out assassinations, abductions, engage in extortion. The Secretary of State is permitted to sign off. Can they do that within the borders of Great Britain? No, that would be illegal because that would be in breach of state law. But this, despite being created by the state, only applies outside of the state's borders, making it outer state 
law. Next type that we said, supranational. Now I already explained that to you in vivid detail the other day. I said to you that we have a type of law that exists between a grouping of states. States come together and construct a legal framework that they are going to subordinate themselves to. The EU is the perfect example. How this is distinct from international law is that we also recreate the institutions, the functions of government at the supranational level. Hence why we have the European Parliament, European Court of Justice, and the European Commission, which would be the executive. So you have those elements to it. And then finally, as I said, international law between states. Now, here's what we have to be clear about in relation to international law, which is the subject that we are studying here. Now, let's say all of these are states. If state A and state B sign a treaty, what is this? Internation law. International law. If they bring in state C, well, what began as a bilateral agreement simply becomes a multilateral agreement. But it's still international law. We include all these other states as well. It remains international law. The character does not change whether we are dealing with two states, 10 states, 100 states, or all states. It still remains a form of international law. If we have a treaty with 200 states, and tomorrow 100 of them repudiate the treaty, we do not want to be party to this anymore. Does it cease to be international law? No, because there still are 100 states party to that treaty. So the number is irrelevant. All that matters is that we have some type of agreement between two sovereign states. So if there's an agreement that's signed between Wales and Northern Ireland, would that be a treaty? Would that be international law? No, of course not. Why? Because we are dealing with extensions of the sovereign. We're not going to go into the detail as to the standing of it, but none of those, Scotland, neither Scotland, nor England, nor Wales, nor Northern Ireland, are permitted to sign international agreements on their own. What about Taiwan? Oh, you're smiling, why? Mm, right, but what is Taiwan, whose sovereignty is Taiwan under, yes? Right, contested, contested. Okay, so it's contested. So do we turn to Chinese domestic law to resolve it? Do we turn to Taiwanese law to resolve it? Or do we turn to international law to resolve it? Fisticuffs maybe? What do we turn to? Difficult to answer and we'll explore that a little later when we look at issues around statehood and what makes a state. But there has to be clarity that you are dealing with a sovereign state. Now let us be clear about something, and this is the lesson that I want you to take away, and then we'll move to another part of international law. Law is, and this is a key word, law is existential. Law is existential. 
law, when I say that, is tied to our identity. It is tied to our culture. It is tied to our history, to our language. Which is why, as we said before, there is inherent subjectivity to law. So the laws in this country will differ from the laws of Egypt, or of Venezuela, or of China, because they are tied to significantly more. They are existential. Now, that is clear when we are dealing with state law, and also when we are dealing with outer state law. It becomes a little less so, a little diluted, when we move to supranational law, as I said, we are surrendering a portion of our sovereignty. But we understand that to be what we term a qualified surrender. A qualified surrender. Now, why do I say qualified rather than absolute? Yes? Right, that's one element of it. You can think of it in these terms where you say, I am only surrendering authority over or sovereignty over a specific area. I gave you the other day the example of trafficking. And I said trafficking. But there's another element as well. Anyone? Yes? So there's the continued consent. And that's what it comes to where we look at it and say, that surrender can be revoked. So as I said, it is possible for a state to repudiate a treaty. I don't want to be a party to that treaty anymore. Can anyone compel them to? Not. Recall what is, or recall, think of what is taking place today. Brexit. What is the UK doing? The UK is repudiating its belonging to a supranational organization. Was the response to that by France, I'm going to send in the troops and overthrow your government? Did the EU Commission say, no, you are not permitted? They said, okay, we're sorry to see you go, but that's it. There is nothing to be done because this is a qualified surrender, not an absolute one, meaning you still retain sovereignty over yourself. Now, with international law, similar to supranational, where there is this qualification of your sovereignty, this qualification of it, law is no longer principally existential. And recall then the metaphor that we used the other day. Each one of you is a state. Each one of you, your identity, your personality is a product of a little bit of nature, so genetics, but a whole lot of nurture your experiences, your upbringing, your parents, your family, your sibling, beyond. Now, that then informs your existence, existential. But once then you couple and you join another, well, now there's a little bit of negotiation that takes place, give and take. And you agree to make changes to your lifestyle. Now, those changes sometimes are welcome, and other times you do so reluctantly. But why do you do so? You do so because you have an interest in the coupling. And in that moment, the decision that you are making is transactional. 
It is not existential, but transactional. So here we have this type of law, state law, this type of law, outer state law. These types are existential, everything to do with who you are. Once we move into the supranational realm and to the international realm, we are dealing primarily with a transactional form of law. What this means is that the law is no longer shaped at the domestic level. The law will never be representative of me because I am now working, transacting with others, meaning I am going to reach some compromise that fuses distinct legal identities. So when we are studying international law, in contrast to domestic law, both the subtext, the purpose, and the context are very different. Now think of this in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. So the Good Friday Agreement, peace in Northern Ireland. Is anyone happy with the Good Friday Agreement? Well, probably the people who are not getting shot are pleased about that. But everyone else within the political class is angered by it because it does not champion their interests. It does not promote their identity, their desires, their preferences, their aspirations. Instead, what does it do? It codifies a compromise. So it is merely a transaction and nothing more. Now, with this as background, we move on to another part of international law. And this I'm going to begin with a question. All right, so let's get started. What did you have for lunch? Chicken and rice, all right? How many rice fields are there in the UK? Anyone? I heard someone say something. Yes? Precisely, none. All right. Um, here, you. What is your cardigan made of? It doesn't look like wool. It could be. All right, let's move on to someone else who knows what they're wearing. You, sir. All right, let's move on to someone else then. Um, how about, no, you're wearing polyester. And you? Is anyone here wearing cotton? Yay, some people are wearing cotton, great. So you're wearing cotton. How much cotton does the UK export on a yearly basis? None. All right, great, none. <laughs> now, I'm trying to look for someone with a tan. It's a little difficult in this country, admittedly. Now let me pose a general question then. Where did you last get a tan? Honduras. Now, how is it possible that she got a tan in Honduras? Put aside the bit about it not being possible to get a tan in the UK. How is it possible that she got a tan in Honduras, that he ate rice while sitting in Coventry, and that someone over here is wearing cotton? Well, the answer, then, international law. All of these items, experiences, possibilities, where the goods in one society, in one state, are made available in another, 
is simply because of international law. Go back to what I said to you before. All of you are sovereign states. Each one of you is a state with your own laws. But you engage in relations with other states. And because you engage in relations with other states, this both confirms the existence of international law and compels the existence of international law. Confirms on one hand, compels on the other. It means that under no circumstances is it possible for a state not to participate in international law if it wishes to have any relations with any other state. By definition, they are engaged in international law. And as I said to you, international law is transactional, meaning it is built around compromise. Now, international law, and we're not going to talk about this very much, but it is important that you know that international law can be subdivided into two principal subfields. So when we speak about international law, depending on who you're speaking with, if you were having a conversation with, say, Professor Solange Mouton, you were having a conversation with a public international lawyer. But if you were having a conversation with Christian, if we were having a conversation with him, you were having a conversation with a private international lawyer. Now, what is the difference? Public international law deals principally, almost exclusively, with relations between states. On some level, it will also involve relations between individuals and states, and that is where human rights law comes in. But we are dealing with states. Private international law is dealing with private actors whose activities have a trans-border, a trans-jurisdictional quality. So if you happen to have a contract between a British company and a uh, Sri Lankan company, you are dealing with private international law. If you are looking at a treaty between the UK and Sri Lanka, this is public international law. Even if the subject matter of that treaty has to do with commercial activities, such as the trade-related intellectual properties agreement, economic activity, the protection of IP, so property law. There's a treaty out there under the World Trade Organization dealing with what would be considered a property matter, so a private matter. Even then, that is public international law. Why? Yes? Involves an international organization, sort of. You're on the right track. Because it's between the states. Now, even that agreement then, that contractual agreement that you have between Sri Lanka, a Sri Lankan company, and a British company, even if that agreement is made possible by a treaty, when you are looking at that, a treaty that has been signed by two countries, 
When you are looking at that agreement itself, you are dealing with private international law. So if you are studying the activities of states, public. If you are studying the activities of entities, private. Important to draw that distinction as it helps to subdivide the field further. You are interested in political economy, international economic law. You are interested in individual protections, international human rights law. You are interested in combating trafficking, international criminal law. You are interested in saving, what, dolphins or whales? International environmental law. You are interested in working for Apple and improving the working conditions of workers at Foxconn in China, international contract law, otherwise international commercial law, both of which are private international law subfields. So draw that distinction, particularly when you are considering studying further subjects in international law, or even if some of you decide to pursue postgraduate studies, if you are pursuing a degree in international commercial law, that is very different from pursuing a degree in international economic law, even though both of them are looking at economic or business activities. They're coming at it from different angles, different perspectives. Now, I've given you this overview right, of international law. And this overview spans several generations. And if you were to go back in history, and here we're referring primarily to European history, as it is European international law that has come to form the foundation of modern international law. Not because European international law is the only type out there. There is such a thing as Chinese international law. There was, at one point, Soviet international law. There is such a thing as Indian international law. There is even Islamic international law. But the one that has come to dominate, and we'll see this in history, in our study of history, the one that has come to dominate is European international law that has now been elevated to the level of modern international law. So if we are looking at the history of it, and you're looking at the point of origin, depending on the historian, historians don't always agree, you would go back to the 16th or to the 17th century common era. 16th or 17th. That is only as far back as you go. And you would either go back to Francisco de Vitoria, a Spanish theologian from the 16th century, or you would go back to Hugo Grotius, otherwise known as Hugues de Groot, if spoken in Dutch. And there you would be looking at the 17th century. So this is where we're looking at the beginning of it. A Spaniard and a Dutchman, one or the other. Now, when you begin with this, and I said this at least to some of my tutorials last year, and I'll mention it to you now. When studying history, one of the first mistakes that young people, and then in fact many scholars, end up making, is they count history in years. And so they say to you, this took place 100 years ago, or this happened 200 years ago, or this happened 800 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. 
Now, what is the trouble with that measure? Right? There's that element, different rates, different time periods. Others? What is different? Why is that, then, an uncomfortable way of engaging with history? Say again? Right? There's this element of imprecision associated with it. So if I say to you something happened 800 years ago, or I said something happened 900 years ago, well, what if it was 876? Well, there's imprecision. We tend necessarily to round. But what is another reason why that is not particularly helpful to us today? Incremental, tell us more. Ah, oh, that's an excellent one. You're going into some heavier stuff there, though. Right? Studying history as a process and not seeing it then as different periods. No, I like that. But we're going in a different direction. And I'd still like to focus on this element as to why it's unhelpful to you. But let me pose the question to you another way. If I were to say to you then that something happened 300 years ago or happened 400 years ago, how is that different in your conceptualization of it? Yeah, you sort of have that. You're going into the numerals. But we go a little bit further. Does it really make a difference to you if it happened 300 years ago or 400 years ago or 500 years ago? Say again? Sure. Who here is going to live 500 years? If we don't calculate, if our experiences don't exist in that measure, that benchmark that we are using, then we are detached from it. So if I say something happened 500 years ago or 700 years ago, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't change anything with how I engage with that event with that process, with whatever it is, that, that object of study. But if I were to say to you something happened two generations ago, ah, well, this is different. Why? So who is your previous? If you were going back one generation, who do you find? Right. And who comes after his parents? His grandparents. And who comes after that? Great grandparents. Now we can start thinking. So if I say to you the concept of equality, everybody here believes in equality, right? Everyone is favor. We're supportive of it. Nobody here says, yes, let's fight for inequality. No, no, we're all in favor of equality. How long has equality been around? Answer, three generations. Maybe four, if I'm being generous. That is it. Three or four generations. Nothing more than that. Prior to that, nobody spoke about equality. How long have we had industry, meaning the Industrial Revolution? Ten generations. That is it, 10 generations. How long have we been farming for? 400 generations. Don't give me millennia, because nobody calculates it. 400 generations. We have been farming for 400 generations. How long has the hominid been around? Meaning, humans socializing in different ways as hunter-gatherers. Ready? 250 thousand generations. So we've been hunter-gatherers for 250,000 generations, farmers for 400 generations, technicians for 10 generations, egalitarians for three generations, and we've been surfing the World Wide Web for half a generation. Right? You're blown away. I see you turning to your mate. Could you believe this? This has transformed my understanding of history. Precisely, telescopic evolution. 250, 400, 10, 3, half. So when we say then, the nation state, and everyone feels this commitment to patriotism, to being whatever it is that you are, 
whichever passport you carry, whichever citizenship you champion, whichever football team you root for, you are actually only going back about 14, maybe 15 generations, no more than that. That is when we had the birth of the nation state. And even if you go back to that time, people still didn't self-identify with the nation state. What did they self-identify with? Any Scots in the room? Anyone of Scottish descent? No? All right. Anyone with familiarity with the history of Scotland? And how did they subdivide? As clans, precisely. A different social formation. Everyone heard of tribes? A different social formation. Villages? A different social formation. The state, the nation state, nationalities, that is one of the youngest forms, social forms in existence. So my surname, Alatar, what does it actually mean? It means spice trader. That is what it means. And anyone who's interested in seeing a photo of the spice shop that my family still owns today, that they've owned for generations, I have it on my phone. It is still there, standing. Wait, I should beat my chest. <laughs> that is who we are. And if you were to engage in conversations with family members, my family in particular, their loyalties are first to the clan, to the tribe, to the Alatars, before it is to the state of Egypt. The state of Egypt is distinct. What matters is those surrounding. And most of you probably feel this. We're not special in any sort of way. So if the state comes to take away your sibling, to take away a parent, to take away a child, I suspect you will fight the state and not allow this to happen because your loyalty is first to that social formation before the other. So when we are studying international law, all we are studying is the emergence of a new social formation and that new social formation requires a new system of social order. And that is what the state sought to construct. But as that nation state formed, so too did other nation states. And the type of relations that emerged, those happened. International law began at roughly the same point in time that the nation state was formed, meaning at the birth of state law. That is one of the truths that I find most comical. Because you can have conversations with domestic lawyers who deny the existence of international law without understanding that state law is only possible because it exists in relation to international law. And what I mean by that will become clear in a couple of minutes. Now, what gave birth to the state? What gave birth to the state is the 30-year war. So, Brits in the room should probably know this. The French in the room should probably know this. The Germans, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, the Italians, they should know this. If you weren't educated in Europe, chances are you have not heard of it. Now, what was the 30-year war? Nothing more than a battle between Catholics on one hand and Protestants on the other. Now notice that I didn't say it was a battle between France and England, because it was not. It was a battle between Catholics and Protestants. 
There was no nation state that you would be fighting for. There were monarchs, there were nobles, and they might have loosely united under some banner, but there was no nation state in the way we understand it today. So we had this battle between the Catholics and the Protestants, and at the end of this 30-year war, we have peace. Peace that was struck in Westphalia. The peace of Westphalia. The peace of Westphalia, on one hand, brought about the beginning of the nation state, and is also the epicenter of international law. What I mean by that, as I said, will become clear. Now, prior to this, the world was disconnected. It was subdivided, organized in the form of empires. So you could think of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Mongol Empire, the Zulu Empire, different empires. Now here was the thing about an empire. An empire extended over a series of lands. Where did it end? Wherever you happen to find an outpost or some of the people. Does that mean that there was a border, a demarcation there? Not at all. Borders didn't exist. You simply had space. And you had these empires over that space. And what did those empires do? Engage in battles with other empires. So the Catholic Empire did battle with the Protestant Empire. And all that empires had was not national law, because there was no nation state. And it wasn't international law, because there was no nation state. All that they had was outer law. That was it. And within the empire, you had a series of fiefdoms, a series of villages, a series of groupings, each with their own custom. And the customs varied from here to there. The only laws that we were dealing with that went beyond the empire were outer law. That was the only type. The peace of Westphalia involved demarcations. And it was no longer about Catholics and Protestants, but rather about Spaniards and Portuguese and Poles. And not just about them, but about Spain and Portugal and Poland. Now we start to give shape to the nation state. And what was the key doctrine to emerge in the peace of Westphalia is that sovereign states would not interfere in the affairs of other sovereign states. Sovereign states would not interfere in the internal affairs of other sovereign states. There was a prohibition on interference. That then is the birth, with the Peace of Westphalia, of the modern state system. Now in the final five minutes, in the final five minutes, a couple of final remarks then that I'm going to make. There's actually much more to this and I may need to engage with it a little bit on Tuesday, 
but on Tuesday we're mostly going to be looking at this issue of theory, the theory of international law, which draws upon this history as well. But I would like to say a couple of things. We are talking about here empires, and empires are extending over space that one can ultimately control. I can claim that this entire room is my empire. Hell, I can claim that the entire University of Warwick is Mohsen's empire. Sounds great, but you're smiling. Who would want it? Yeah, well, I ask myself that question every day. Now, if you are saying that this is my space, and then all of you are walking there, and I say that you have to pay me right, some kind of a fee because you happen to be on my empire. Is anyone going to hand everything over? Probably not. Why not? I have no authority, nothing that you regard as authority, and I have no control. Now, when you go home, those of you who either live with your parents or used to live with your parents, and your parents told you that you had to clean your room or wash the dishes, or mow the lawn, or anything of the sort. Did you say, sorry, busy? Chances are you acted on this. Why? Because they possess authority. And most importantly, you recognize that authority. So it's not about the violence they can exert over you. It's not about the fact that they can enforce it. Rather, it's about the recognition of their authority. So when it came to empires, it had everything to do with recognition of the authority. I recognize that this is the law of the land. Now I say the law of the land, and I didn't say the law of the sea. Why not? Water is oceans, seas are very different. How do you exert control over seas? By being a pirate, yes, right? There's that element, being a pirate. You're smiling so much. I know if law doesn't work out for you, you've got a brilliant career ahead of you. So how do we exert control? Physically, it's a near impossibility. Why? Just because of the nature of water and the nature of our existence. It is very difficult to exert any control over the water. So there we have two doctrines that emerged at the time then of the Peace of Westphalia, and we're going to discuss this a little bit more on Tuesday. And this is what I want to end on, the two doctrines that emerged right around that time. And they emerged in large part because the empire decided that here, which was the beginning of the waterways, and they knew that over here were other lands other resources, other people that they were interested in. Interest can be defined in a variety of ways. At that point in time, and this is what we'll continue with and what we'll conclude on now, the notion of terra, T-E-R-R-A, nullius, Terra nullius, N-U-L-L-I-U-S, and another one that isn't nearly as popular, Terra communis, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-S. Terra nullius, Terra communis. Terra nullius, we are simply saying these lands are available to be discovered, to be set
was terra nullius. So that is a problem that I want you to think about. And I want you to think about it in relation to the conversation we just had at the outset regarding outer law or outer state law and the conversation we had about nation um, international law. The answer to 